This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van of Sacramento State University. Today, I've got a special triumvirate on the show, Robert Alpert, Merle Eisenberg, and Lee Mordecai, to talk about disease cinema, plagues, pandemics, and zombies in American movies. Out with Edinburgh Press, Univers- uh, out with Edinburgh University Press in 2023. This is a topic that I love, and I've done a little bit of writing uh, myself on these uh, these things, so I'm pretty excited to chat with my guests. Uh, first, Robert Alpert is an adjunct professor at Fordham University, where he has taught courses on computers and robots in film, movies in the American experience, and media law. He also has uh, written extensively on movies, including on directors such as Chaplin, Myers, and Big- Bigelow as well as other topics such as gender, the Hollywood idiom, and the politics of science fiction. His publications can be found in Jump Cut, Senses of Cinema, and Cine Action. Uh, Alpert received his MFA in film from Columbia University, and he received his JD from New York University and practiced intellectual property law for over 30 years. Robert, if I may, welcome to New Books in History. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Merle Eisenberg is an assistant professor of history at Oklahoma State University and a founding faculty member of the Oklahoma State Pandemic Center. He has published articles and journals, including the American Historical Review and Past and Present. Uh, His work has also appeared in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which received press coverage in CNN, Fox News, USA Today, and the New York Post. He has also appeared on CNN to discuss historical pandemics and regularly teaches courses on plagues and pandemics in history. Along with Lee Mordecai, he is co-founder and co-host of the Infectious, excuse me, Infectious Historians podcast. Merle, welcome to New Books in History. Hey, Mike. Great to be on. And uh, Lee Mordecai, who was just mentioned, is a senior lecturer at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and the associate director of Princeton University's Climate Change and History Research Initiative. He has published over 20 academic articles, including two in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and in the American Historical Review and Past and Present. He has taught several courses on epidemics, including a seminar that used a draft draft, uh, version of disease cinema, plagues, pandemics, and zombies in American movies. Uh, Lee and rest of Team Zombie, welcome to uh, New Books in History. Yeah, thanks so much, Mike. It's great to be here. Yeah, and I I just want to note right away that Infectious Historians is a really great podcast, and listeners should check it out. Um, I had the honor of being a guest on it twice uh, during during kind of the, the wild days of lockdown pandemics. Uh, we get to talk rats and sewers and bubonic plague and then another time talk about it. Another colonial rat um, uh, <laughs> for that episode. Um, 
So um, yeah, check out Infectious Historians. Uh, these two do a really great job, and I, and I think was really sort of pioneering in in the history podcast genre. Uh, so uh, chapeau. Um, and so I want to start off asking you guys about collaboration. Um, Merle and Lee, you are pretty uh, high profile collaborators, although. Maybe that's a, a poor turn of phrase there. Um, your collaborations have been very high profile, shall we say. Um, and that's not something that we do a lot of in the humanities. Um, yet you three worked together on this book and uh, Merle and Leave worked on the podcast and you co-authored publications in the American Historical Review and also in Past and Present. Um, and I'm wondering why you think, uh, one, historians don't do more collaborative work and two, why you decided to do collaborative work. Um, so in the spirit of collaboration, um, why don't you two share this question? Yeah, so for, thanks, Mike. I mean, it's a great question to start us off with. I mean, I would argue that we historians are actually disincentivized uh, from doing that, right? I mean, we. I mean, I was actually told by multiple people in multiple universities not to collaborate until you get tenure. And the idea is that if you collaborate before tenure, I mean, whatever you do, whether it's an article or whether it's a book such as this one, it would count for ideally half whatever it is and most likely zero for tenure purposes. So, I mean, maybe the the question we should ask is why should people actually actually collaborate? And I would argue that at least at a personal level, it's mainly because of interest. I mean, I think there are things that I can do, I can do well, and there are many things that I cannot do well. And by collaboration, which is really an idea that, I mean, at least in my, on my side, came up from my collaborations with scientists, natural scientists, these collaborations allow me to kind of expand my, my, my reach, my intellectual reach, so to speak, and be able to do all these projects which I could clearly not do by myself without committing much, much greater time, if at all. So in, in this particular collaboration, for example, I mean, bringing, collaborating with Robert, who, who's a film scholar with expertise in film, I mean, I didn't have anything like that before. So working with Robert was really a way for me to, to learn a lot, but also be able to say something that I could not have said otherwise. So I, I didn't know that, that... Um... You'd done a fair amount of of work with um with scientists before. So did that did I mean and and that's so much more common in the hard sciences to have co-authored pieces and co-authored research and some of the you know those of us in humanities look at some of the authors on articles and the list goes on and on. It's longer than the title, right? Um, uh, did that did that sort of set a pattern for you in your mind of this is this is an appropriate academic um, practice and something familiar? I mean, originally, yeah, it, it's so, I mean, I started collaborating with scientists, but it, very quickly on, I would say I started, I mean, I moved from there to, to collaborating with Merle and we had like our own uh, two person show that, that we, I'm both like the actual podcast, right. But also a series of articles that we've done together. And I think we, we felt comfortable enough to, uh, expand that collaboration, so to speak, that's like a third person. So it's essentially a, a transition from doing all my work by myself to, I would say now most of my work is really done collaboratively. And I personally find it much more fulfilling. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. It, you know, it makes me think of um, 
um, Dennis Flynn and um, Arturo Giraldez, who are the the silver guys in world history. They wrote a they co-wrote a series of articles on um, uh, South American silver being sent on the Spanish galleons to the uh, to Manila and the Chinese economy. Really foundational for the the so-called California School in world history, and all their important work is co-authored. And um, they're kind of outliers in that way. They're, also, neither of them are historians. Uh, one's an economist and one um, is a literature expert. But um, Merle, um, yeah, come on, collaborate on this. Uh, share, share the question. Yeah, no, I think Lee covered most of the, the problems and pitfalls. I mean, I'm more optimistic. You know, we've been doing this podcast, as you said, the infectious historians now for four years, which is kind of crazy and remarkable. But you know, in the beginning, we kind of had a lot of these existential conversations about what are we doing and are we collaborating? And I think the field of history is slowly moving in that direction. Um, the American Historical Review, or sorry, the American Historical Association just went out with some new guidelines of pushing people toward collaboration and counting things. And that just happened, you know, a couple months ago. And so I'm, I'm much more optimistic in that regard. And I'll just echo, echo most of what Lee said, which is to say, many things that I know Lee doesn't know and vice versa, and many skills each of us have really complement each other. And I think it allows you to write both better uh, and more quickly and more fruitfully when you work with people who bring different skill sets. Now, it obviously creates some tension, some friction, and there are points in which each individual person, I think, steps up to the plate, as it were, or steps back, and you have to learn people's personalities and how this works. And I think we'll probably discuss some of that today. But, you know, in your own work, right? I, you know, I, I love your graphic history, which is fantastic. I don't know how good of an illustrator you are, but right, you had someone it's who terrible. came on, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I've assigned your article as well on the topic. And, you know, the students, the, the images combined with the research is what really resonates with them, right? This collaborative interdisciplinary work. And so I really think that's where the field is slowly but surely going. Um, it's just going to take more time as Lee said, due to tenure and various things in which the field itself exists. Yeah, yeah, no, that's all really fascinating. Um, and 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 you know, it your your guys' work really makes me want to explore during doing further collaborations. Um, I think it's uh, it's been a, a great model here. Now that um, now you brought in Robert Alpert uh to work with you guys. How did you? How 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 did you meet um Robert Merle? Yeah, so I met Robert a long long time ago. One could say very early on in my life. Uh, actually, Robert, just awkward for me to call him, that is actually my father. And so as a small child, my dad would bring me to movies, some of which were probably not appropriate for small children of five or six years old as someone who has small children myself. So I've been very much into film as art and telling cultural stories and as a way to think through how society functions, probably you know, innately since I was born or can remember. And so, you know, when we thought about this project, which maybe I'll let Robert, i.e. my dad, uh, tell more about how we discussed this, but, you know, it became an obvious place for me to look when Lee and I had written our American Historical Review article. One thing we realized was the power, we work on the 6th century, broadly speaking, but we realized the power of the 20th century in popular culture in thinking about the Justinianic plague, which is what we work on. There's this great image, I think it's from a video game, of Constantinople in the year 542 during the outbreak of plague. And what's the most prominent thing in this image that I always show is this giant rat 
right in the middle of, I think, the, the right foreground of the image, even though we have no evidence of rats in Constantinople in 542 at all. But obviously this idea of rats, plague, disease, as you know better than I think anyone else, is so powerful, right? I tried to figure out where this came from and where these ideas develop. And the most obvious place for me was thinking through film. Yeah, that's great. Well, well, so so where did the idea from this uh, for this book come from, and and collaborating on this book? This is Robert. Let me chime in. Uh, yes, Merle has been going to movies since he was very young. <laughs> since actually he was only a few months old, we used to take him to the movies. Um, inappropriate, perhaps I don't know. Um, but he's always gone to the movies, always loved the movies, and wrote about the movies, as I recall, even when he was in college. So it was, you know, naturally that he would think, I suspect, in terms of movies. Let me just also say part of my desire to collaborate, there was multiple. One was that actually um, I was surprised when Merle actually gave me um, some of his articles um, um, when he was writing on the uh, on the Middle Ages, and I remember, you know, going through them and critiquing them. I thought, wow, he actually wants me to to participate in this and work with him on this. And so I was pretty excited um, when I I don't know if it was Lee or Merle suggested that we should write a an article. And I thought, okay, I could write an article. That's not a big deal about movies and diseases. And we actually started talking about that. I believe it was about uh, August or so, the summer certainly of 2019, that we were going to write an article. And and then I don't know. I Actually, I do remember distinctly it was actually Lee. I don't know if Merle put him up as the front or not. But, but Lee actually said, gee, why don't we turn this into a book? And I thought... Okay. And and I actually hesitated because I think I said to the two of them, do you really want to write a book about movies? I mean, you guys are medieval historians. You know, you you got to write about that. You've got to get, you know, the, you write boxes checked off and so forth. But they seemed to want to do it. And I was, truth be told, I was actually in the middle of writing my own uh, movie book. But if your son asks you to do something, you know what? You can't say no. So we started writing it, actually. I, as I say, I think it was in August. And I always tell the story of how um, we were writing it. And then in, in um, I believe it was in January of 2020, I remember, and I still have it, I sent them an email that there was a, that I had read about an outbreak in the Washington Post in China. And I remember sending to them an email, both of them, an email saying, isn't this what we're writing about? A pandemic? And 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 then the next thing you knew, it started escalating and we collaboratively, but most of it was done by, you know, them, wrote an article for the Washington Post and we kept writing and it just grew. And we had to come up with a list of movies and how to structure it and so forth. So it was quite the collaborative process, but it was a long time in in really you know growing so that's that's how the at least that's my perspective of how this project grew it could be at, at times it was difficult all collaborations are difficult <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's the that's, nature of collab that's the good side of collaboration um it is i would echo what merle and lee said it's it's i i my hat's off to you it's difficult in academia i have tried separate apart from this to, how should I put it, collaborate with people. 
or share courses or do things. And it's just not done. It's, yeah, it's it, not, not, I, not it's, done and, 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 and institutionally not encouraged, but um, I, th I think we're doing ourselves a real disservice in, in that regard. Um, so, you know, bravo to you guys. I think that's just fabulous. You, you started the book the summer before uh, COVID. Um, I've been making the joke um, uh, that, you know, in, in real estate, the, uh, the first three rules are location, location, location. And in publishing a book about uh, <laughs> pandemic history, the three rules are timing, 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 you know, get it, get it right before or sort of coming out of uh, the pandemic and then you'll, you'll do well. So, so good work, you know, maybe, maybe people are, are ready now to like take a little breath and start reflect on the COVID experience. And so this book will be flying off the shelves. Um, so um, what's, what, what is the overall argument for um, uh, diseased cinema uh, plagues, pandemics and zombies in, in American movies? So I guess we can we could go and make like three key points in the book, right? So maybe the first one would be that films, and we really looked at films over the past century or so, so let's say early, mid-20th century until more or less the present. I think the last latest movies we have are, what, 2021 or 2022 in the book, right? So over this century or so, the, the, these films that have disease within them as a key plot element, right? So these have, these movies have really changed significantly over the past century, right? And so, and this is clearest if we look back and let's say mid 20th century movies and watch them today, and they, they feel off in the way they understand disease, right? Very briefly, and I'm sure we're going to get deeper into this later, but briefly, disease shifts from a story about a very limited containable outbreak, that is to say an outbreak that can be stopped and contained. So that's the, the original way in which people thought about disease in, in early and mid-century, 20th century movies. And that transitions into our understanding of disease in movies today, which is really a way to talk about mass death and global pandemics, right? So films about the, this limited containable outbreak are just not made anymore at this point, right? So that would be the first point. Then the second point is that the early movies really show how disease is, is contained with both low and local mortality, right? And this is generally portrayed as the, the good actions of government officials or individual, individual scientists who are these heroes and work to protect both their community and the world rather than anything like personal gain or something like that. Right now, once we move forward in time to the present or maybe the, the, the early 21st century, these plots tend to assume both mass death and chaos and this idea of just wiping away everything, all, all this corruption, all these corrupt institutions around us and kind of like starting anew. In the civil servants, right, the ordinary individuals as heroes is, is really out of place today and, and is often replaced by a fantasy superhero. I mean, a good movie here would be World War Z, for example, which is really a, a superhero movie. And then the third point, the third key point is that both these shifts really underscore the changes in capitalism that are really the structural reasons behind these changes. That, that, that's, that explains how these movies change over time. And we move, in a sense, from a world that is centered on people as part of or living within communities to a world that really cares 
about individuals who, who strive to survive amidst the wreckage of the world or, or the, the tearing apart of the world around them, right? So these would be like the broad three points of the book. Yeah, yeah. And and I, I mean, I was, I actually, I, I, I know I, I told you guys, uh, I think via email, maybe on Twitter, that I, I read the first part of this book on the, the train to Busan from Seoul to Busan. <laughs> and Train to Busan is a famous Korean uh, uh, zombie film, maybe the arguably the best Korean his zombie film. Um, and I was I was delighted in the introduction when, when you started engaging this the history of capitalism and and looking at culture and economic processes and their interaction. And and the book was much more than I thought it was going to be at that point. And um and I, I think fantastic in that regard. Um why don't we go through this, uh, the book chapter by chapter? There's there's six uh, main chapters. Um, Robert, would you tell us about chapter one, which is um, early disease movies, uh, American norms and containment, and tell us about the significance of films such as Panic in the Streets um, and um, the way in which maybe Seventh Seal or Night and Living Dead sort of changes that containment uh, or challenges that containment well, idea? Sure. This, is all, this is all sort of Cold War uh culture and cold war thinking right mm, yeah. not entirely no, no. okay good please no, no not entirely yeah. um let me let me just perhaps i'm saying as i'm looking you know at, at the table of contents is thinking back the at, on this chapter in some respects it's it's the most pleasant chapter in the sense that at least we have a norm now as the book brings out the norm is have you have to be of a certain type to fit within that norm but it's the one era during which there is a kind of, um, uh, I don't want to say stasis, but a certain calm about America at the time. Um, at the beginning, we talk about some very early movies, um, including the European Nosferatu, a vampire movie. And all the movies are consistent with it insofar as they're always focusing on the idea of the other, the foreigner, somebody who's outside. Um, and yeah, in, in that discussion of, of mm -hmm. Nosferatu, you really... Mm -hmm. Uh, underlying the anti-Semitic uh, tropes in that film, and that 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 discussion was really quite well. But I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt. But, but go on. No, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's it's the other. It's mm -hmm. the other. By the way, the other can be any other. It can be you know, it can be persons of color. It can be a, a gender, namely women. Um, it can you name it. The other is out there. I, I did preface by saying, as long as I'm not the other, then I'm comfortable being in that majority, I suppose. But but it's a it's a portrait that essentially um, believes that America, which at the time was a kind of managed uh, capitalism, industrial capitalism, believed that progress and science were possible and that therefore there was a common good that the public experienced and believed in. And it's, you know, in these movies as well as others, of course, but the, focusing on these movies, um, you know, uh, uh, there's a slew of them, far too many to be able to talk about that we talk about in the book itself, even, you know, ranging from Jezebel to Pacific Liner and Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, all of which, while they address different diseases, um, all are about the ability to actually, as Lee said, contain disease. And there was a belief that if you worked hard at something, even like in Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, even if you were Jewish, you could actually find, if you were a scientist, you could actually accomplish things and, and right wrongs. The quintessential movie that we focus on is the 1950 Panic in the Streets, which, is, which tells about a, a military doctor who was working in New Orleans in order to contain the pneumonic plague. And 
while the story is about containing, it's also about the fact that those who bring it into this country are all foreigners. They all come from Europe. They all come on a ship. The lower class people are really not Americans. So there, there is a divide. There's a cultural divide. But as long as you fit on the right side of the divide, what the film essentially is saying, that we will work together. And the doctor in that case um, doesn't care that he's not getting compensated well. His son wants more goodies like a, a train and, and other things. And he doesn't have enough money to have a second child. But it doesn't matter because he's going to do the right thing. And he is he's successful along with a working class cop to contain the disease. And that's that's why I say it's the quintessential. It's kind of the quintessential movie. There's a there's a line in there which kind of expresses the view. Do you think you're living in the Middle Ages? He asked somebody else. I could leave here today and it could be in Africa tomorrow. We're all in a community, the same one. Now, that speaks for the notion that we're all in the same community. Of course, the community in this case is America, which is extraordinarily wealthy and is really trying to expand um, globally at the time. Later but, move, the other, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but I was going to say, so that, I mean, that ahead. makes, that, that film makes such a good argument for this uh, enactment of containment and this mm -hmm. valorizations idea. And there's, there, there, there's just sort of middle-class, um, Experts, but civil servants who 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 save the day, but then that gets challenged uh, later in the chapter, right? Some of the uh, yes, it does. But yeah. even 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 those that you know, let me. The other movie we focus on is Night of the Living Dead, George right. Romero, who really created the whole genre, and even that movie, yes. You know, it doesn't have a happy ending. The hero gets shot, and the and the movie is about the the inequities in America. It was 1968, you know, when there was really turmoil in this country. And so people questioned the norms. And so the film, not surprisingly, questioned such norms as um, family, gender, and race. Race plays an extraordinarily important role in the movie, notwithstanding what George Romero says. And, and But while it critiques it, the movie also affirms or at least conveys the idea that these are problems, just like civil rights, that we as Americans can solve. And that, yes, there are zombies wandering across. We don't know why, but they can solve them. The problems can be solved by America. And there is still a belief in the family. There is still a belief that we can do something. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, that 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 family scene with the uh, when the daughter eats her parents. I mean, was was that a is there an optimistic? Sure, <laughs> they even, even even in that scene, if you think about it, yes, the, the the scene says in this case the family has gone astray and they literally eat themselves, but. It doesn't suggest that the rampage will, you know, continue and endlessly either. The house still stands in some respects. And yeah, what do you got? You've got, you know, the white hunters going around continuing to kill people, including the hero. And yet Romero, I still still affirms the possibility of family itself. It needs to be reconfigured. But the possibility exists. At the end of the movie, there is containment, ironically enough, of the zombies, mm -hmm. which everybody tends to forget. It's not like one of the, the later version of the movie, which I I think Lee or, or Merle will talk about, where 
it does not end well and the zombies really rule the world. But in this case, it, they actually are contained. What needs to be done is a reformulation of that world. I mean, there are later there are later movies, um, you know, during the next couple of decades, which actually question it, like shivers that we talk about or virus. But those, in some ways, are outliers. I I, I believe that while they talk about just, you know complete destruction, there's still a belief in the institutions, and there's still a belief that the values America has will be retained and will continue. Okay. Yeah. Merle. Merle? Yeah. One thing I wanted to to make clear is what we decided to do in terms of the book is focus on certain movies that we thought highlighted the aspects of a particular time period while recognizing that there were always outliers, right? I mean, nothing for all historians, right? Nothing happens perfectly. Every film doesn't fit every time period. So there's different films within each section that we talk about that were outliers and are strange. And sometimes the themes get picked up uh, much later on. And and the other thing I should say, you know, we focus this much more on American films, right? So something like Train to Busan, you know, you've written about has lots of very interesting messages about capitalism in Korea and these types of things. And we decided, you know, you can't do everything. And so one thing is we made it very much an American focused film, recognizing that that was kind of the limits of of what we could do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, hey, Merle, tell us about uh, chapter two, um, which is entitled Disease Movies in Transition, Globalization and Imagined Containment. And here it's sort of engaging the the dark fantasies of globalization, seen in Outbreak, 12 Monkeys, 28 Days Later, 28 Weeks Later, all films that I saw in the theater and really loved. It. I saw a bunch of these in graduate school and they were, um, as, as I was doing my my early research on on history of disease and in the in the french empire so <laughs> these actually had a lot of resonance in in uh with me um so these are all films of the um uh, from the 90s and and the early 20th century the era of the uh soi disant uh, end of history um how how did these films wrestle with globalization and and probe its 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 darker aspects yeah so these films are a little strange in many ways because as you pointed out, there's a lot of resonances with, you know, where we are in, I guess we're now in 2024, I keep saying 2023. But, you know, globalization is there, disease will spread, but it's really the first era, you know, where people are starting to recognize that possibility. You know, the, the quintessential movie here is Outbreak, which uh, Robert walked us through Panic in the Streets. Outbreak is just a remake of Panic in the Streets, and Panic in the Streets was actually potentially called Outbreak before they chose that other name. So, you know, they weren't even that clever. But it's a movie in which you have the same outbreak in a small place, and that eventually gets contained by a heroic doctor. But if you actually watch the movie, aside from it probably being a romantic comedy, fitting in the romantic comedies of the mid-90s, you know, you've got Mail, which is probably my favorite, because it was filmed not from far from where I grew up, but in, in other aspects, you have this globalization, you have this recognition that disease can spread everywhere, right? We're coming out of the 80s and the HIV AIDS pandemic and really the realization of what a number of people have called the age of re-emerging infectious diseases, where we start to think about disease again, really as something that can wipe out all of humankind. But it's also this strange period where people are still very optimistic. So a movie like Outbreak, and I think I can spoil this movie, ends in a very happy note, right? They actually contain the disease, even though if you actually watch the movie, it makes no sense that the disease is contained, 
Um, a movie like you pointed out, like 12 Monkeys, where there's an outbreak and then it's not contained and it's about the apocalypse and what happens next and trying to prevent it actually seems to make a lot more sense in that context. What makes Outbreak such an important movie, um, and I there's a great series of uh, clips you can find from CNN or Canadian TV or wherever you might watch, is Outbreak arrives in the movie theaters at the exact same time as a real-life Ebola outbreak in uh, Kikwit uh, in 1995. And so you have these literal news reports where they're using images from Outbreak in the news report as if that's what's actually happening on the ground. And that combined with a series of books is what really explodes the genre at the time in 1995. Because the, the film Outbreak came from um, Preston's book, uh, Hot Zone, right? Which is is a, was a was it a New Yorker article originally, and then it's 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 I remember reading that as a graduate and it's 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 a, it's, a, it's a little sensational, it, it, but it's about the same time that Laurie Garrett's Come and Plague came out as well, right? Which is you know real thick and much more thorough. But there was this, there was you know disease was so hot right then, right? <laughs> like it was it was really having its moment. I'll let Lee chime in because yeah, I know yeah. he actually read The Hot Zone to his daughter. At one point. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> the beginning of COVID, uh, I was just like reading that book aloud uh, to my newborn daughter. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it, let's say it, it did not age well. But I think both both those books, right, both the Preston book, the Laurie Garrett book, uh, this entire like early to mid 1990s was a specific historical moment. And this kind of follows up on this reimagination of emerging infectious diseases or perhaps re-emerging infectious diseases, which is also an idea that, that started in the, the very late 1980s, early 1990s. And that we could start going, I mean, we could start analyzing this and point to, to this being really a reaction to the response to AIDS, HIV. Um, but I'm not, this is like, a, if you want to stay with the movies, we can stay with the movies or we could just like continue, whatever yeah, you... So, you know, something just popped in my head and maybe you guys can shoot this down, but just in sort of like cultural shifts, I mean, there's, you see this all the time in um, sort of, sort of uh, critical um, uh, reflections on recent history that in the collapse uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, the American empire needed an enemy. And, you know, fortunately, it found that enemy in the defense contracting industry found that enemy on 9-11. But maybe in mid-90s, there's this, there's, is, is, is disease popping up as this possibility of this enemy that the, the empire could throw itself against? So, yes, and even more. I mean, if you look at some of these movies, and I mean, again, looking, watching them today is, is very different, right? In Outbreak, who are the bad guys, right? Yes, okay, the virus is like bad, right? But actually, the military, I mean, the military is portrayed as like the evil guys. If you look at one of the Body Snatchers movies, actually also called Body Snatchers, I mean, that that also shows the American military as essentially like a, a bad actor or is that is full of, of bad, of like minor bad actors, right? And I think none of these movies could have been made after 9-11, right? Mm -hmm. Definitely not in this country. Right. So there's like this complete transition that, that happened, which is also something going on behind the scenes. But rewatching all these movies, some of which, I mean, I grew up on as like a kid, teenager. I mean, I 
did not remember that. And rewatching them kind of made me realize how much things have changed. Yeah, no, I've, I haven't seen many of these movies in years, so I'm kind of eager to go back and uh, and, and check them out. Um, let's move on to uh, the third chapter. Um, uh, Post-apocalyptic disease uh, movies, uh, pandemics, and post-humanity. Um, and this talks about one of my favorite genres, um, uh, you know, the the end of the world uh, stories. And, you know, you talk about children of men. Uh, actually, children of men, my, my wife had never seen children of men. And um, after uh, Trump's uh, inauguration and, and gave his uh, his, his uh, American carnage speech, I said, let's watch a movie. Let's have some fun. And so we watched Children of Men and she didn't sleep that night, completely traumatized. That was not a not a good doubleheader. Um, but Children of Men, uh, Contagion, which is, you know, sort of a, a, an a response, an, an update of the the outbreak uh, story, World War Z, um, and the Planet of the Apes series, which um, is absolutely formative to uh, uh, the the whole run of the Planet of the Apes. is formative to who I am as an individual. Um, uh, just to, you know, you know, the original Planet of the Apes novel was written about colonial Vietnam, of course. Mm -hmm. And um, anyway, um, so what 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 do these what do these films represent? Uh, with these uh, in this period of uh, post apocalyptic excuse me, post apocalyptic fantasies. So I mean, I'll start by saying that actually, of the films that we've been discussing, I think *Children of Men* is perhaps one of my favorites, and that has actually aged very well, definitely compared to some of the other films. I mean, it still speaks very clearly yeah. to contemporary well, issues. Well, in the in the United Kingdom, it's been reclassified as a documentary. Well, that you said that, right? <laughs> With after Brexit, I mean. They, <laughs> there it is. I, I still need to pass through there sometimes, though. So, I mean, you said that. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I think in, in this regard, thinking uh, to myself, I mean, these are movies that came out as I was becoming an adult, so to speak, right? So not no longer a young adult, which is like maybe like the second chapter. But, but these movies, I think, still very much speak to us in the present. This is the, the, the broad paradigm through which we think about disease today, right? And I think if, if we broadly think about all these movies, again, they've become much darker than the previous movies. Diseases are now terrifying. They're global pandemics, right? They're like all over the place. Right. So children of men maybe is happening in Britain, but they, they do tell you again and again that actually the entire world has, has gone very bad, so to speak. Right. Yeah, baby, baby, baby Diego was in Argentina, right? Yes. Yep. And, and they, they have this like ad on the film showing collapse like all over the world it, on, a, on, I think, it's a bus or a subway train. And only Britain soldiers on, right? Britain is like the only place that that's the, the the remaining surviving bastion of humanity or whatever, right? So you have that. You have World War Z, another like very global film happening in all these different areas around the world. I mean, from I think Korea and Israel and Wales for whatever reason, and obviously the United States. Uh, you get Planet of the Apes, also a very international movie showing how the disease spreads worldwide. And, and of course, Contagion, which is may maybe the quintessential movie uh, of of the past generation, so to speak, which I mean, I, I'm sure we're also going to discuss this later on in, in the last chapter of the film, of the book. Sorry. Let me just add to what Lee said, which is on Contagion. Um, I, I think. We've all focused on there's a line in there that kind of sums up, which is, you know, everybody is after, 
trying to take care of themselves. And, and one of the characters actually verbalizes it. And he says, I'm just taking care of everybody in, everybody in my boat. And when you compare that to you know what we were talking about earlier, Panic in the Streets, where there's actually the possibility of the Richard Widmark character who plays the, the hero, um, says he's not going to uh, prefer his family. That That's just unheard of. Nobody would do that. And now you come to Contagion decades later, and everything is seemingly, and I emphasize seemingly contained because of fortuitous events. The One of the primary characters with whom we uh, empathize with actually verbalizes that everybody's on their own now. And that is just 180 degrees from where we began in terms of what disease is now about. We may contain it, but who cares? I just got to get out and I'm just taking care of my own. Doesn't yeah, seem very well of us. Yeah, Lee? And, and, and actually, Robert, I mean, the, the character who says that as, as is this main CDC official, right? So it's not just like a random person on the street. I mean, this is one of the people who is supposed to be responsible for, for the, the nation's response to, to the, the pandemic, right? So, I mean, maybe to, to re reframe the entire thing, I mean, in this third chapter, let's say over the past 15 or 20 years or so, these pandemics really overwhelm human societies worldwide, either leading to a post-apocalyptic reality, I mean, sometimes a post-human reality as well. That's something that we, we could get into as well. And if they are stopped, in the case of contagion, right, they are stopped, but only after tens of millions of deaths. I mean, the film actually doesn't want to tell us how many people died, but it's clear that over tens of millions and then the cost to the entire world is very great. And this is really the understanding, our understanding, especially the pre-COVID understanding of what a pandemic is going to do. And this is also why contagion was, was so important. But again, we'll, we're going to get to that, I think. Yeah. And also, it's it's just a, a better film than um, Outbreak, right? And the, the science is a little better and the like the like the the explanation of of um, uh the disease crossing over the the human or the, the animal human boundaries the turns out disease like it, it's just done a little better right merle yeah i mean i'll say two things yes from a quote-unquote realistic perspective it's better although if you watch outbreak you realize it can't really get worse although when outbreak came out at the time <laughs> the bar is set so low the bar is so low but there's actually some there's some great articles from some doctors, I think, that came out in the early 2000s when Outbreak came out. And they said, this is the most realistic disease movie that had ever been made up to that time. That was actually a claim that they somehow backed up with some data. The data seems dubious, but but it is there. And as you said, contagion surpasses this standard. And this becomes important during COVID because actually the people, and we can talk about this a little later, but the doctors who were consulted on the film basically become minor celebrities during COVID for, you know, how much they could prognosticate the future. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, I mean, you can reread this entire discourse, right, as a form of marketing, right? Because, I mean, the, the original script writers of, of Outbreak and also the ones on Contagion, I mean, the movie pushed them as like as medical experts as, as part of the way in which the, the movie marketed itself, or the the, the, the studios marketed those movies. Yeah, so, so that that's clearly something that's going on there. And I would also mention that actually, Contagion was not that popular when it came out. It was not seen as this like great movie. And in a sense, I mean, its afterlife 
during COVID, especially at the beginning of COVID, probably was probably more important with regards to, I mean, its cultural impact or, or how people watch that movie? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm a bit of a disease nerd in that regard. I, I remember rushing out to see it. I was really excited. <laughs> and 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 remember thinking, oh, that's much better than Outbreak. Although I, I saw Outbreak in the theater with my dad, who was um, uh, University of Hawaii Med School and um, a, a geneticist and immunologist. And he, he, he said, yeah, I think his take was, yeah, that's probably the best disease movie uh, up to that point. But again, the bar was set low. Um, chapter four, um, uh, remaking humanity, the bo- remaking humanity, the body snatchers, um, looks at the retelling of a theme um, in the fifties, the seventies, the nineties, and the early twenty first century, with reboots of the the body snatcher uh, trope. Um, Robert, what's 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 up with body snatchers? What's going on here? Um, the remakes. Essentially, take a was a sh- short originally a short story, and then became a novel. And over the course of time, they take the same plot, the same narrative, versus the same characters, yeah. and completely rework them. And it's a it's a wonderful way to see how America has changed. Um, you watch the there are um, you know a handful of these. There are I guess six of them, and. The first one is by a classic director, Don Siegel, done in the 50s, 56. And it's really a straightforward story. It sort of reiterates in some respects, I suppose, Panic in the Streets. As long as you're a member of a certain class, you fit within um, and everything is understood. And Siegel has actually emphasized that he made the movie, which involves um, uh, alien life form seeds coming down. Um, landing on earth and then they develop into pods and then the pods take over human bodies and they become kind of like zombies for want of a better term undead Um, and that's the basic plot of all of them and there's always one guy who's usually the doctor then he realizes oh everybody's turning into these zombies these undead people and then he fights against them and, and typically has a girlfriend or not and then they fight against it and the question is will they you know, triumph and what's going to happen. Anyway, that's the basic plot. But boy, does that change. It changes from Siegel's classic people are pods uh, kind of depiction um, where the pod, the pod people um, have no emotions. Um, and it's a critique of conformism, assuming you fit, you're not the other, of conformism in America. And they tacked on actually a, a prologue and an epilogue to make it a happy okay. story. Originally, it was Siegel wanted to end with uh, the the main character Miles screaming in the streets, "You're next! You're next!" But the studio, what a surprise! Didn't want it to end that way. It was a little too dark, um, so they forced an ending where, and it's kind of a strange ending because. They, the the authorities, the federal authorities believe him and therefore they institute a quarantine around the whole area, which is kind of strange too because when you think of it, the, the federal authorities are actually the source of some of the conformity in America. But anyway, it has a happy ending. The next one comes in 78 and it's Philip Kaufman is the director. And this is more about the spreading to urban America, San Francisco in this case. And it's really something of a... Um, a critique of of um, of counterculturalism, um, the me decade, and how we have through consumerism 
everybody is beginning to look and act the same. It's one of the weird things in the movie. The guy who played uh, Spock in in um, Star Trek plays Leonard, the bad Leonard guy. Nimoy. Yeah, yeah, Leonard yeah. Nimoy. <laughs> and he had actually written one of those books. You know, one of those you know me books. Um, and it's a little darker because you know this time actually uh, the the pods win and and there's some you know uh characters from the original movie that come in here and they're taken over too including don siegel who turns out to be a pod person in this movie yeah. the third one is in 90 was, was was donald sutherland is the lead in the uh the seven yeah yeah exactly I, I, I saw speaking of seeing things too young i i saw that in the theater when i was 11 years old and uh that must uh, have scared the fajesus out of oh me. yeah 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 Especially when his girlfriend, um, who's the actor, escapes me for a moment, um, you know, she she screams, she's naked, and that she screams and points at him. It's like the most eerie, yeah, you know, yeah. resurrection of these pod people. Yeah. And then and there's, it, there's it, a there's a line there's a line in there that lives in my uh, my head rent free because he's uh, a, he's a health inspector or something, right? Yeah. And yes, he's, exactly. he's in a restaurant, and he's he's telling uh, the uh, the the French chef that oh there there's there's rat shit, rat in this food. and he says right. it's a caper. Yes, <laughs> and every yeah. every t- every time I get the capers out, I think of Donald Sutherland in that scene. But um, yeah, girl, yeah, yeah. I just want to say, if you were traumatized seeing that with your dad, I was also traumatized and <laughs> seeing that with my father. Obviously, much later on, I think it must have been in an art studio. But so I was forced to see that movie, which you know. Listeners can have a good time psychoanalyzing everything we've now been saying as you were forced to watch, you know, pod people take over with your father and then write about pod people taking over. My dad also took me to see Apocalypse Now in the theater, so I would have Oof. been probably 11 or maybe wow. 12 then. And maybe maybe that also helped set me down this uh, career path. Yeah. Um but I'm, I'm sorry, Robert. We interrupted you. That's okay. That's okay. Let me yeah. let me skip. Let me hurriedly skip over a couple more. Yeah. There was the body snatchers in '93, which is the 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 pods become even more aggressive. They actually begin imitating. Whereas the earlier movies, humans would imitate pods. They'd act mm. as if they were like dead to senses. In this movie, the pods begin imitating people, and they're even more aggressive, and they're part of the army, which you know kind of ties into what Lee was saying about the anti-army uh, theme in the 90s. In uh, 2007, um, a movie which kind of got lost, I think, called The Invasion, starring Nicole Kidman, and they reversed the genders of all the characters. And that's where it gets even more kind of disturbing. Instead of, the, first of all, the CDC is are the bad guys. They're the ones who spread the the uh, the virus um, through vaccinations um, that they they treat every quote, treat everyone with. And the military actually saves the day by finding the cure. But what's they spread it now not by pods but by spitting at people. So it's like physical aggression. But what's most notable in the film is that as more people become infected, the world actually goes more peaceful. (laughs) And wars seem to end, conflicts seem to end, and things seem to get better. And at the end, they get rid of the, you know, the invasion, they get rid of the infection. But it's a strange ending because you wonder, as do some of the characters, gee, we got rid of the virus, but now look, 
humanity is in a horrible place. So it, again, continues to question um, what the value is and what our values are as humans. The last one is the most disturbing of all. It's a, it's called Little Joe, by uh, directed in 2019 by Jessica Hausner. Um, it got, I would say, I remember seeing it actually. Uh, I think it was, I want to say it was at the Cinema Village or the quad here in new york a small theater there was virtually nobody there watching this thing <laughs> and and it's the worst in terms of like where we where we wound up because it's about a woman uh in in uh in england and she develops this delicate red flower for a biotech company um and then she brings it home she's not supposed to and what happens is it's pollen when you inhale it's pollen it turns you into this kind of deadened being and slowly of course the plant spreads because everybody who who gets infected wants to spread it to the next person and it gets spread across the board and eventually everybody including the main character is also infected and it's going to spread across the world. Now, what's really disturbing about this movie is it's not only have we brought it home, it is not only that it was developed by a biotech company, but the director herself, actually, in contrast to Siegel, who spoke out against the pods, the director actually um, um, said that, you know what, if the infected are happy because of this, who are we to question them? Who are we to object and she actually said she hated the first part of Siegel's movie, and she liked the second half, basically when everybody was becoming a pod. And you know what she added? We don't have free will, so what's the big deal? So we lose our free will. That's what the movie is espousing. So we've gone from Siegel, who hates conformity, to decades later, where we actually encourage it through biotechnology so that we'll all be the same. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's an amazing trajectory. Um so the next chapter, chapter 5 is actually a body of work that I know the least about. I don't think I have seen any of these films and I'm not a gamer. Um so chapter 5 is popularized in the pandemic, the Resident Evil franchise. Uh and I I think this is one of the most successful um uh cinematic adaptations of video game uh video game video game series. So um I never thought I would have a conversation with some leading academics about resident evil but um merle um tell me what 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 do i not get what am i missing out on here so i'll just lay my cards on the table and say not much as movies (laughs) this was i would say the hardest chapter for us to write both because there were the most number of movies we felt compelled to cover right i think when we talked about some of the other movies we could, you know, pick the ones we thought were paradigms of each time period. And I think they stood out to us pretty obviously. In this one, you have a franchise of six movies and you feel compelled to talk about them all to an extent in a way that we really felt we couldn't actually in the chapter. So we actually went back and forth. And it's also really difficult to talk about because none of these movies are artistically good, if I can just be objective for a moment. And not only are they not objectively good, but they're also completely incoherent when it comes to plot. So you have things that happen in one movie and they give you an explanation of, say, the outbreak of the zombie virus, the T-virus in the movies. 
And by the time you get to the next movie, they completely change it or they'll make one group the bad guys and one group the good guys, and then they'll invert it in the next movie and then invert it back again. So, I mean, these things go back and forth. And, you know, you can't blame that. There's six movies, but they're all the vision of the director, who's Paul Anderson. And it stars Mila, Jov Mila Djokovic, who uh, plays Alice in the movies, and they actually get married uh, along the way during this franchise. And then eventually, by the time you get to the last movie, they have a daughter who stars in the franchise. So it's very much a family affair. They make the daughter, you know, one of the members of the Trinity and her a different member of the Trinity Wait, when it comes so to God. The, the actress and the director were married. I, I, I missed, I missed all this. I guess, I guess I need to renew my subscription to, to people or us, us weekly or something. Yeah, they get married. I forgot at what exact point. There's actually a New York Times article that came out maybe a year or so ago when we were finishing up the book, huh. them reflecting on them getting married and how that process went for them. Um, um, heart wants what the heart wants. I mean, I, <laughs> go go on. <laughs> yeah. And so what we felt was important about these books, artistic merit aside, and almost no one's written about these books because they, again, have very little artistic merit. So my sense is, I don't want to speak for all film scholars, but no one really wants to watch repeatedly. They're all on Netflix if people want to watch them. Bad movies over not, and not, over not again. Not books, but films. The films, yes. Yeah, yeah films, okay. The films are all on, on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. But these things made over a billion dollars, right? I mean, compared to any of these other films, which made, you know, I guess Little Joe made nothing if it was an art house place or other places making, you know, in the at best, you know, maybe a hundred million, I think was contagion. These things made a billion dollars and everyone seemed to watch them. So we felt we had to basically show that it's not only quote unquote good movies, but also bad movies that were important to these themes. And what we realized throughout these these movies, and I'm happy to talk in more details if you want about particular ones, if you're really interested in video games, I think Lee is the only video game player uh, on here, is the same themes work, right? The change over time narrative we laid out at the beginning, the same collapse of the state and institutions works out over time, and the same movement from, you know, uh, views of capitalism work as well from a state-managed capitalism to, in this, I would say we even get to anarcho-capitalism by the end, hmm. right? Which is the idea that, you know, you need to wipe everything out, get rid of all states, and everyone running their thing on their own will be fine. And what you realize in that anarcho-capitalist movie and the paradigm of the last movie is the solution is to destroy everything and then somehow a savior will arise by their own volition and goodwill and save us all, right? As if that's actually ever going to happen if we get rid of all states and decide we're all going to go our own way. So that you have, you know, Alice basically has to turn into a literal superhero to go fight and destroy the evil corporation in the end. Yeah, I, I, I did not know know these films, but I mean, it. But your, I think your argument about their their commercial appeal um, and their their popularity is, is is really important because even though I've never seen them, never played the video game, I basically know what they're about. It's so ambient in the culture that it, it's as unavoidable. Um, Lee. Yeah, I mean, the other aspect I think, especially at the end, is, is that Alice is not not only a superhero, but as Merle said earlier, she's also part of a trinity, right? So she's like a Jesus figure as well, which is also, I mean, the movies are not good, I agree, but at least they're interesting as a way to reflect on, on, on these like broader trends and what things appear to, to attract attract audiences. Again, it's a pretty successful franchise. 
Yeah. I mean, it sounds like the, the plot, uh, borrows a lot or resonates a lot with the alien series, um, especially with the, the motherhood and the, and, uh, visions of different, uh, corp corporate relationships to government in the future. Yeah. I mean, what's remarkable about the movies is how much of a ripoff of other movies they are <laughs> and how much they also don't, um, really break any new ground when it comes to a paradigm, but literally copy and paste it. And I'll give you a couple examples. The first one, Resident Evil, which comes out in 2002, which is after 9-11. So you would think you would move to a paradigm in which, you know, you have more globalization, fast zombies as you start to get, but it doesn't because it's made earlier. And also the movie is, if you boil it down to, it's just a copy and paste job of Aliens, the second Alien movie, down to, you know, a very diverse commando team, you know, a woman leading the charge. I mean, it's just a straight copy and paste job uh, when you get down to it. And then the other thing that's remarkable about it, and I think Robert hinted at this when it came to the, the third chapter of the book, is you also have the apocalypse happens, but you don't even know why or how, In at least until you get to the last movie. It just literally happens in the opening credits of the third movie. Someday the apocalypse happens and we're all going to die. And then we have to live in this post-apocalyptic world, which is actually very neatly reflective of movies of that time, which don't really talk about how the disease spreads anymore, right? The rise of the planet of the apes, right? The move, the spread of the disease happens in the end credits that if you just walked out of the theater, you wouldn't even know that everyone dies at the end of the movie, which is the point of all these movies, right? It doesn't actually matter anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the the last full chapter, uh, chapter six, is um, movie miss the the COVID pandemic, and um, you know it, why why did we watch all these pandemic movies during a pandemic, um, and and what good or what harm did that do? Um, so what what are, Lee? What what are, what are you guys' observations on viewing cinema of disease of pandemics during the pandemic? Okay, so maybe I'll start with the first question. I mean, why why did we watch pandemic movies during a pandemic, right? Why why did Contagion reach like the number two most viewed or number one or number two most viewed movie on Netflix? I think sometime at some point in March 2020. So, so over is, over a decade after its release, right? Yeah, yeah, over a decade after its release. Yeah, I mean the the quick answer is, I don't know. And not only do I not know, I don't think anyone has like a good answer to this. I mean, people early on in the pandemic, this, this became a thing a noticeable thing. And I mean, you saw like articles on the New York times and the Washington post and wired and all these places kind of like reflecting on, or, or trying to suggest reasons as to why people are, are so engaged with this film, with this film in particular and broader, more broadly, if films about pandemic at the beginning of a pandemic. And I mean, you can throw some ideas out there. I mean, some people would say that it pre presents uh, some kind of an timeline of, of how a pandemic should happen. So you get all these like people, including some celebrities who were saying, oh, I'm watching pandemic now. I'm, I'm watching Contagion now. And it's, it, it seems like a documentary. It, it's like we are now at this moment. And because we're at this moment, I kind of know what's, what's, what's going to happen in the next week or two weeks or month or whatever. And, I mean, other people would say that, yes, we want to watch these movies because we want a happy ending in this time of, of great insecurity and uncertainty, again, at this very particular moment, which is, let's say, between February and April 2020. So, I mean, from the point where it was clear that uh, COVID was big 
to and maybe a little after the first lockdowns, the first major lockdown, lockdowns in different countries around the world. So, so at, at that point, no one really knew what was going on. And movies such as Contagion were a common frame of reference that people could talk to and, and communicate to, through as well. You get the same thing to a smaller, lesser extent, let's say like 28 days later, especially in the UK context. So there, people who have never watched that film would still refer to that. They would say, I, I never watched it, but I know what, is, what it's about, and this is my experience right now. So again, these movies were like a way to, to communicate together and, and kind of feel together in a sense. It, I mean, from our perspective, as I think Robert said early on, we started writing the, movie, the the book and planned it before COVID and then COVID hit and we kind of realized that we have to reframe and kind of like change everything. But in, in the end of the day, I think COVID was a good example for us or a good case study really to show how, I mean, how these movies impact the ways we think about disease, right? And I think we really focus on those first few m- months at the beginning of COVID and look at the interaction between COVID and the movies, right? So how these movies suddenly regained their popularity, people kept on talking about them, even like very old movies, right? The Andromeda Strain, for example, right? I mean, who spoke about the Andromeda Strain until 2020? Not that many people, but apparently there, there was there was coverage of the Andromeda Strain or like outbreak or whatever. So we did that. And we also kind of tried to think about whether COVID would change movies in the future, and I mean, when the book, when we finished writing the book, it seemed to be the answer seemed to be pretty negative, and I think the answer continues to be pretty negative. It's not as if COVID has significantly changed things with regards to movies being produced, but again, who knows, right? I mean, things might change from now on. Yeah, um, Merle or Robert, do you have any thoughts on viewing in the COVID COVID uh, era? Uh, during the COVID era, I I I, I just I was going to ask, add to what Lee said that I don't think we've learned anything from it. And, <laughs> and, and what, what, and does COVID still exist? Do you know what I'm saying? I I think one of the things hope is drawn from the book is that it's not just about COVID. It's about entire um, structure system, whatever you paradigm, whatever you want to call it. And I think what, what came out hopefully during the course of the book is that diseases um, reflect the way we are as 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 a culture, as a society. And what has not changed and therefore will not change how we address COVID, um, none of that's going to change unless we change as a culture in some way, that our values begin to change. And that seemed to me the lesson from all re- looking through all these movies to see how we went from a a sense of common purpose, common good, a sense of belonging to the extreme opposite where we either are on our own, you know, our own boat or we just annihilate everything so everybody is the same and everybody can move efficiently through the system. As long as we have that as our paradigm, Nothing's going to change with disease. Disease is simply a reflection of who we are and how we therefore dress it is not going to change unless we change ourselves. And that's the lesson I ultimately drew from writing the book. It's a somewhat downer <laughs> because, you know, it means we need profound changes if we're going to correct 
what's happening considering the disparities between how we act in real life and how we show ourselves in movies that's got to end and i i i i leave it to wiser people than us i suppose to figure out how do you solve that issue yeah um merle do you do you want to have some thoughts on this this last uh this last question sure i guess i'll just make two small points number one I never understood why anyone wanted to watch any of these movies during the early months of COVID from a personal perspective. <laughs> I, I was reading Nancy Toms's Gospel of Germs, actually right at the start of lockdown, fantastic book, but I had to put it down for about two months because the idea of reading intensely about a past pandemic during it seemed to be not my thing. You know, I was much more in the, I guess, Ted Lasso camp, right? Watch something uplifting and happy during COVID. Well, but you you started a fantastic podcast about disease. I mean, <laughs> what's, what's what's going on here? Okay, so <laughs> yeah, that's a, probably an open question. That again, I should psychoanalyze myself a little better. You're you're correct in that regard, but I think you know I. I think movie watching was a little different for me, maybe also because yeah. we were, you know, we were at a certain stage of this book that I thought the idea of going back to watch Contagion to check for these things. And I think it was Lee's idea to give him credit to catalog what people yes. were watching and to try to figure out putting this in the chapter. And, you know, again, if you want to think about things that, you know, we talked in the beginning about collaboration, Lee is fantastic. And he scraped basically massive databases and gave us everything that was ever published on a series of books. Now we had to go through that and make sense of it. And I think we wrote this chapter multiple times because there was, I think at one point, right, as the thing was basically done, we were about to hand it in and China lifted its strict lockdown. So we had to literally rewrite multiple pages at the end because we had this whole thing about they were under strict lockdown and what did this lead to um to talk about dangers of, of writing about the present as it were right uh, the the other thing i'll say that that's interesting about the movies and and reality is is one thing that became pretty clear is is really two things and this echoes a bit of what robert said one was the discrepancies between what films that were even quote unquote very realistic like contagion showed and what reality is 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 so vast right i mean the disease in contagion you know i'm going to say this and probably listeners will chuckle kills everyone without regard to any other social demographic age race ethnicity class whatever it might be it just kills everyone equally right and the idea that covid somehow mirrored that is as we all know to this day ridiculous but that's how it showed it on screen. And the other great example is how everyone gets the vaccine in uh, Contagion is they just do a lottery based on people's birth dates and everyone is super excited to go get the shot and they sign up. And once everyone gets the shot, the disease goes away. <laughs> Again, a laughable idea. <laughs> We're all you know, laughing uh, even in this conversation. So that that's the first group of things. And then the other thing I'll briefly say is I think, you know, movies are, are stories, right? Movies reflect reality. They reify reality they push reality however you want to think about it they're not a one-to-one -one comparison but i think what they show is the importance of you know films being able to show new stories and you know the famous quote i always go back to is is jonas salk when it comes to polio here right where he where they asked him why didn't you patent the vaccine and he said you know could you patent the sun now, if you actually look behind the scenes of all that, he didn't have the rights to patent it and it was already paid for, et cetera, et cetera, as the factual basis behind it is. But the myth is important, right? And that's what I think movies can really help us with. Mm -hmm. And could I ask you guys, what, um, 
I mean, you, you, you have to set a certain scope for the book, but this is also an era of a, a number of and some very successful and very well done uh, zombie uh, and disease television shows, scripted dramas. I mean, uh, from I mean the the mm -hmm. the Walking Dead obviously is huge. The the Korean uh, uh, series I wrote on uh, Kingdom, which is set in the um, set about four hundred years ago after the uh, Japanese invasion, but yet wrestles with all sorts of contemporary issues and and then the the really successful video game adaptation of um, uh, what was it? Uh, the Last of Us, which was. You know, ac actually, some of those episodes are extraordinary pieces of art. Um, but I mean, I, I know you have to set your parameters. But do you do you guys watch TV too? I, I mean, I, uh, <laughs> Robert doesn't. Robert doesn't. <laughs> I, I do not. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm too busy watching movies. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I mean, I, I would say that this is something that did come up on multiple occasions in our conversations, right? I mean, where do we put the line, right? I mean, why? I mean. I mean, we, we eventually decided to put the line and include film, mostly American film, as I think we started off. And that meant that we would not include other things. And I mean, again, TV is like the easy way. I mean, one easy thing, the other two, e I mean, the other two things are games, right? I mean, mm -hmm. both video games and board games, both of which I think play a role as well. I mean, I think Plague Inc. is, a, is a, 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 an application you can... I mean, game you can play on your phone things that it has had some 100 million downloads or something so this is also clearly something that's influential but we just decided that we wanted to focus at least on one medium to be able to say something more clearly i mean starting to i mean you can't ignore the walking dead and we're not ignoring the walking dead but again to to, to do a, a good service and really analyze that you would need to watch what 12 or 13 seasons and those on and red episodes yeah. right like 200 episodes spin-offs spin-off series and yeah yeah i mean and the entire thing which i mean again there are people who do that right there are like books on that volumes whatever that, that analyze that franchise in itself but for us we wanted to actually get in touch with with the actual like, primary with the primary material so to speak right that the movies themselves not read uh, literature about like the different episodes or whatever and to to do this in a meaningful way we felt that the, the we, we just had to focus on the films yeah no I, you I, I i totally hear you um i've i've written on film over the years i've also tried to write about uh television uh particularly hawaii Five O, and you have to watch so many episodes to to get a sense of the series and it's a it's an entirely different undertaking you, we, well, so I, I, I'm sorry. Ben. I was just going to add, we actually, I remember uh, looking at Merle and Lee. I think we actually talked about doing one of the TV shows. And I think Merle was going to be the, the guinea pig. And and I think he was just so overwhelmed at the thought of having to to attack it. We just decided. There were other things we we talked actually also about doing a chapter on, on George Romero's zombie movies. There are just so many ways you could approach the topic. Mm -hmm. And as Lee said, you have to make a choice. You you can't do everything in one book. Absolutely. Got to set your parameters. Merle? Yeah. yeah, I was just going to add that I think we did have a Walking Dead chapter. And I had been volunteered yes. against my will because I watched, you know, I think like, I don't know about yourself, Mike, but many of us watched, you know, six or seven seasons. And then we said, I can't do this anymore. So I got through that and then I was going to have to go back and then watch them. And then at one point there was a Resident Evil 
short series on Netflix that's still there, obviously canceled after one season. So I was tasked with watching all of that. And then there was another Resident Evil movie that came out that I think basically no one watched effectively. But after this six part franchise that I was also tasked to see or maybe yeah Yeah. so i mean as you said it it could be infinite but the idea of watching you know 250 episodes of the walking dead universe just made me want to kind of die inside and so that was the end of that you you've you've suffered for for the art and we we appreciate it thank you for your service (laughs) so um you guys have been really generous with your time and um uh, just to wrap things up, we've got two questions for you. These are my standards, new book, new books, debriefing questions. Um, so uh, first off, can you recommend two books for the listeners? Um, Robert, why don't you go first? Um, well, let me recommend two books. These are not new books. I hope yeah. I, okay. Um, and I'm, I assume you're talking about nonfiction books. So let me focus on them that I would recommend it to all listeners. One is, um, an old book, a very old book, actually. And if you're interested in movies, this is the book you really should read to understand movies. And that's Andrew Saris's The American Cinema. It's the book that introduced the idea of the auteur theory in, in America. But more importantly, he was a very a passionate critic and writer on mo- American movies. And he really kind of got uh, people thinking about what makes movies unique, exciting, and so forth. He was passionate about it. And so I unhesitatingly recommend his book, If You Know Nothing About Movies. Um, The other one is a little different, um, but it's the one that certainly has influenced me in terms of where we are today and trying to understand what's going on, which is Shoshana Duboff's uh, surveillance capitalism, mm-hmm. which I think really kind of hits the nail on the head, along with her later articles about, you know, what kind of world we're living in today. Not a great world, but what the heck, right? Yeah, you know, I actually recommended that to a friend of mine who works over at the Evil Empire uh, at Google uh, when it first came out, and he uh, he really appreciated it. <laughs> yeah, it's it it pardon the pun, it infects all your thinking, at least does for me. It's bad. It's like a disease. (laughs) Um, Merle, two books? Sure. I'll give two books. I'll stick with the nonfiction. One, which has been hotly talked about, at least in the circles that I run in, is is David Graeber and David Renbo's Dawn of Everything Mm -hmm. from 2021, I believe. It's a bait about inequality in early history. This has resonated particularly to me. I'm teaching probably a course near and dear to your heart, Mike, which is world history from the dawn of humankind to 1500 at the moment. Oh, know it well. Yep. <laughs> yep. So this is the first time I've taught it. So that book has been, among others, has been central to how I think about the prehistory part of the course. Right. Great. Right. And the second book, which resonates, I think, much more with this book in particular, I always recommend to people is Dan Rogers' Age of Fracture, which is from about 10 years ago. This is kind of resonating with many of the themes of the book, but it looks at the broader cultural perspective of how American society broke down in terms of collective solidarity and institutions into a very individualized system. And and Dan's a great writer. um, And this is kind of one of his, you know, great books. So I highly recommend that. Great. Fantastic. And Lee. So I would actually recommend two fiction books, which I think have have influenced at least me. And I, I think they're useful to think think through. I mean, one, I, I guess they're like probably cliche at this point, but I still think they're, they're worth mentioning. 
Yeah, so, so one would be maybe maybe it's like a generational thing actually. Never mind. I mean, one would be George Orwell's 1984. I mean, this is a book I read. I first read like let's say 25 years ago, and I mean I keep coming back to that, and it seems to speak to me at different points in my life and at different points of the world and in different ways. But I mean, I still think that book has a message. I mean, to I mean, today, right, 2024, which is, an, is not the message it used to have in, let's say, I don't know, 2018 or 2010 or 2005 or I mean, go back to like 1948, right? So that would be one. And the other would be Frank Herbert's Dune, which is also a movie. It became several movies at this point, right? But I mean, it started off, again, a, a book I read, I think, in my early teens for the first time. And every time I, I read that book, I seem to get something else out of it. And I think, I mean, we could talk about the movies. I mean, I, I, the best say I could, the best best thing I could say about the movie that came out, right, uh, was like two years ago, was that it was not bad, right? And I was very afraid it would, would, would be bad. It was not as bad as I, I feared. But uh, I mean, it was, yeah. Merle, do you want to jump well, in on that? The, actually, the best thing about the, the new Dune um uh, series is it uh, uh, normalizes CPAP machines and, and makes them look kind of sexy. So, you know, those of us who have apnea, like, you know, seeing the, what's your name, Zendaya with the uh, the CPAP thing, it's like, you know, it's a good look, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, Merle. Yeah, I just want to say two things actually that are interesting about the new dude movie. One, I think I've told Lee, but the first thing is actually that was the first movie I saw in a theater, you know, since the COVID pandemic. And I was very freaked out. I remember about masking. There weren't that many people there, but I remember that now quite well. The second thing is, while I don't endorse everything about the movie, I will say having seen it in the theater and then actually just rewatched it, I think the other day on Netflix, it's actually one of those few movies that you do need to see in the theater because it's the sound mm. that you get from the speakers that you know when things are humming and things are resonating, you really feel and really makes the movie a lot better. So I, I I watched it on my phone on a uh, on a flight. So, um, <laughs> do, you, do you remember when John Stewart hosted the Oscars and he uh, he came out and he was looking at his phone and he said, "Oh, sorry guys, I was just watching uh, Lawrence of Arabia." And he's looking at his phone. He goes, "But and you really have to see it in widescreen." And he tilts the phone to the side. <laughs> that was. Um, I I know that for a scholar of film, Robert, I know that joke hurts. Yeah, um, it's it's it and I and I'm not a fan of part one, part two films too i must admit yeah i think there's well, going to be part three for this one if i remember correctly oh even better <laughs> well in 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 the, in the spirit of of, of things uh breaking down and and zombies taking over um i'm gonna throw in a book recommendation to use a little uh host privilege here um i want to strongly recommend uh my friend Alyssa Sepp Alyssa goldstein steppenwald's book a slave revolt on screen the haitian revolution mm -hmm. in film and video games and yeah okay there's there's a little zombie overlap there. there's a little zombie overlap because um quite a few of the american films on haiti of yeah. which there are very few are, are, are zombie films, right? I mean, white zombie being the kind of the er text uh, there, but she does such a fantastic job. And, and um, that book resonates uh, with so many huh. things that you guys are doing with um, disease cinema. Yeah. And um, one, one thing, great conclusion she came to is she wanted to, she wanted to write a book on, on film, but found that there was just this paucity of, of representations of Haiti in in cinema and the Haitian Revolution, particularly, just very very few films. 
But she discovered, unbeknownst to her, that there was a ton of representations in video games. And so she got pulled into this other world of screen culture. And there's actually, going back to the 1980s, games written by um, um, Afro-Caribbean Francophone uh, uh, game game makers about the Haitian revolution. And then I, again, I'm, I'm totally out of my zone here. Lee's giving thumbs up signs, but um, in, I think in the Assassin's Creed series, there's like, there's a whole, I don't know, series or whatever, the installment, whatever it is, there's a whole Haitian uh, themed uh, revolution themed um, uh, number of games. And one of the most popular characters is um the uh the 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 enslaved man who rebels the black man and it has a huge fan base so anyway so many things about uh slave revolt on screen just resonate with that and and the book's got a ton of chris rock in it um and um uh, he he made a fantastic film called top five that's uh secretly about the haitian revolution anyway um last question and um We'll start. Uh, we'll start with Lee. Um, what um, What are you working on now? Um, what can we hope to see from you next? Right. So I'm I'm this year on sabbatical, and I'm just finishing uh, the fixes to a book manuscript, which is going to look at an environmental an environmental actually atmospheric event in uh, 536 CE. Right. So not something that seems very very interesting or so on. But it actually is, and this is part of the, the argument I'm making in the book. Uh, I mean, this is essentially important in the 6th century. I mean, very few people paid that much attention to it. But over the past, let's say, four decades or so, right, from the 1980s until today, it becomes increasingly large until uh, back in 2018, Science Magazine, right, the top journal worldwide for academics, it heralded this year, right? So 536 CE as, quote unquote, the, the worst year to be alive, right? So what I'm doing is actually looking at this story of how essentially a non-event or a, mi- a very minor event turns to be this uh, kind of like gap between uh, the, the end of the Roman Empire, the end of antiquity, the beginnings of the, the Middle Ages or the modern world. I mean, this uh, massive event and how it's being built up through, I mean, scholarship, media, public discourse, and actually a lot of the the lessons that I've learned from the book we're talking, where we've been discussing in this huh. episode, have really gone gotten into uh, kind of analyzing popular culture for the, this new book I'm working on. Right. Was it was this the climactic event triggered by a volcanic eruption that we're not sure where the volcano was, or am I? Yes, yes, Am I, yes. Am I, am I yeah, giving yeah. Okay, giving yeah, away yeah. the the punchline? Well, um, apparently, yes, you, you you know this, right? And you know this yeah. because this is, this is now a cultural thing. I mean, the, there are 40 million views on YouTube on on videos just about that event. Oh, no, I mean, and I, I know it because I teach um, Gil and Darcy's Woods uh, book on Tambora in mm-hmm. my uh, graduate um, uh, seminar on world history, which does such a great job. I mean, so great. I, yeah. I, I'm excited. Um, maybe this will be in on my seminar syllabus before too long. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lee. Or I'm sorry, no, that you were Lee. Merle. Sure, I should say I have read all of Lee's book manuscript and I very much enjoy it. And I've given him extensive feedback as he knows. And I think Robert, when he goes, we'll talk about his other book project, which I've also read and given him extensive feedback on. So, you know, collaboration continues. So is this all to say that you've been helping out your father and your buddy and you haven't had time to work on anything? 
No, I'll give my pitch for what okay, I'm doing. Okay, but, good, okay. But I will say, I will say for for my sins, I guess for my sins, I, I've read four book manuscripts from colleagues over the last four months. So I don't know what that means about what people think about my feedback, for better or worse. But my own work, I'm doing a few different things. Uh, the first is uh, here at Oklahoma State. We just got a big National Science Foundation grant for some work on the impact of COVID on various communities of color and other people um, and lower classes. So that's something I'm working on as well as something on the 1918 influenza pandemic uh, in Oklahoma. So that's been a fun project. Yeah. And the two book projects I'm working on are one is my own book, which I'm about halfway through rewriting is uh, on the experience of living at the fall of the Roman empire and what's now Southern France today and how people transformed in various ways what it meant to be Roman over time. And so you get the fade out of the Roman Empire from as much as we can, a very ground up approach, rather than looking at kind of big things like barbarians did it, or the Romans, you know, couldn't get their act together kind of thing. Ooh, that's, that's exciting. I, I, yeah. I, I um, because the colonial archives are in Exxon Provence, I, I lived in Southern France for years. And, you know, you're, you're surrounded by these Roman ruins. And, and, in, I'm I'm from California and Hawaii. Like I'm not used to having old things around. So and that that does make you think about history and and the rise and fall in this more existential manner. Fantastic, yeah, yeah. And and so the other thing I'll say is Lee and I are also writing a book on the first plague pandemic. I think that will kick off in more earnest. Now that this other book is done, we've previewed this on our podcast as a running joke for I think literally four years now, Lee. Uh, so that I think we're also in the process of writing as well. So you you, you guys are just died in the world collaborators. In some things, yes. <laughs> or I just read all of Lee's drafts. Okay. And Robert. Well, I just want to say for the record, I treat all my children the same, <laughs> which is to say, I don't just give my manuscript to Merle. I've just passed on the same manuscript to my daughter Shane, and I'll then pass it on to my daughter Dana. So I want all my children to know I treat you all the same. Okay. Now, having said that, um, the manuscript is actually the manuscript that I had started before we did this book. Um, so I've actually returned to it. I'm, I'm pretty much getting to the close, uh, the ending of it. Um, it's uh, the, the tentative title is, is a movie history of uh, robots and computer, the artificial intelligence myth. Uh, and as you might gather, it's about uh, uh, robots and computers and AI and so forth and how they've appeared in movie and tracing the history beginning at the silent era right up to the present. Um, the underlying thesis of it is essentially to show how we've gone um, from believing and espousing um, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein myth to a myth now um, uh, that I've dubbed the artificial intelligence myth, which in part is political, but it's a substitution of what I call the the idea of belief in in uh, nature and serendipity and sublime, and instead substituting for quantification and predictive certainty and all the boring stuff that we call living today, but frankly is more like death. So it's an uplifting book. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Well, fantastic. I look forward to seeing all your work in the in the future. Hey, thank you all for chatting with me today. I um really enjoyed this in a number of different ways. Well, thank you again. It was a real pleasure. It's fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Mike. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you. 
Right. Yeah. Let let the the, the Soviet style mandatory thank yous. We all have to do them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this has been, been a conversation. It's been a delightful conversation with uh, Robert Alpert, Merle Eisenberg, and Lee Mordecai about disease cinema, plagues, pandemics, and zombies in American movies. Uh, with Edinburgh Press in 2023. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network, and thank you all for listening. 